Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for April 19th, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Looking for someone to blame for the backlog of appeals at the ALJ? Look no further than the racks, according to senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. What's the latest healthcare regulatory news coming out of Washington? Matthew Albright is standing by with the legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Fink Samnick, Dr. John K. Hall, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We continue to monitor the coronavirus pandemic. Today, nearly 570,000 have lost their lives to the deadly virus. Last week, the World Health Organization reported a grim milestone. Globally, more than 3 million have lost their lives due to the coronavirus. In the meantime, the Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is monitoring allegations of COVID-19-related fraud and abuse. The watchdog agency warns that fraudsters are using telemarketing, text messages, and even going door-to-door to scam vulnerable people. And finally, engineers at NASA reported this morning that its experimental helicopter, Ingenuity, rose in the thin Martian air above the dusty red planet surface of Mars. It's the first powered flight by an aircraft on another planet. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. He is pitch hitting for Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is on vacation here now, is Dr. Hall. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. Ron's a hard act to follow, but I'll give it my best shot. This week, I want to revisit a prediction I made regarding COVID-related audits. Several colleagues have contacted me recently because they've received audit notices from the OIG. The OIG has begun auditing hospitals to, quote, determine whether Medicare paid hospitals for these inpatient claims in accordance with federal requirements, end quote. Make no mistake, though, the OIG is auditing billing, not payment. As part of this inpatient status audit, the OIG requests documents and, of course, a questionnaire. Additionally, the OIG is auditing the qualifications of individual claims for the 20% increase in MSDRG weighting factor. After September 1st of last year, a medical record with a coded COVID diagnosis must contain positive test results. That test must be the result of specified viral testing methods consistent with the CDC guidelines in effect at the time the test was performed. The test must also have had FDA approval or an emergency use authorization at the time of testing. The OIG asks the hospital to confirm if it declined the payment of the 20% increase in waiting factor. And if the hospital did decline the increase, the OIG requests a copy of the hospital's communications with its MAC. The OIG also asks if the hospital subsequently rescinded its decline. And as expected, the OIG requests written documentation of that also. So if you have billed a COVID diagnosis on an inpatient claim since 9-1-20, you should assume you're going to be audited. If you sought the 20% increase after September 1 of last year, you should prepare to have these claims audited. And even if you decline the 20% increase, COVID claims are still subject to audit, and you might want to prepare anyway. The first step is risk assessment. You should determine the volume of COVID claims submitted since 9-1 to assess potential impact. Next, you should assure that you can identify the specific type of test used and the FDA approval status on the date the test was administered. Next, 
you should assess the risk associated with other diagnoses in these claims, such as sepsis, respiratory failure, mechanical ventilation, and renal failure. Any coded diagnoses that contribute to CCs, MCCs, or otherwise modify the DRG or reimbursement will likely be scrutinized by the OIG's medical reviewers. If the diagnoses do not conform to recognized criteria, you should expect DRG denials. Finally, expect inpatient medical necessity to be rigorously reviewed. The next step is going to be response. And with the assistance and guidance of your compliance team and legal counsel, you're going to need to determine how much additional review of your records is required. Zero and one midnight stays rarely have sufficient documentation to survive audit for inpatient reimbursement. Three midnight and longer stays should survive unless the record indicates the stay is for a prohibited reason. Two midnight stays are the most complex, and the outcome of these claims will be determined by the auditor's assessment of the documentation of reasonableness. These audit results will undoubtedly be the basis for additional reviews. So, good luck. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hall. Dr. Hall was making his Monday rounds this morning in the absence of Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hall is the founder of the Aegeus Firm. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. All of our listeners understand that your Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements can be suspended without notice due to credible allegations of fraud per 42 CFR 455.23. Accusations of fraud is every health care provider's worst nightmare. Suspension of your Medicare or Medicaid reimbursements when you rely heavily on these can destroy a company. And many times, the credible allegations of fraud are anything but credible. The same potential devastation can occur when your Medicare or Medicaid contract is terminated. When these tragedies happen, a preliminary injunction is needed and needed fast. In the last two months, my legal team and I have won two preliminary injunctions for two separate clients in completely dissimilar fields. The first healthcare provider is an oral and maxiofacial surgeon. The second healthcare provider is a substance abuse provider with a suboxone clinic providing, say, CST, medication management, and outpatient therapy. Now, in order to obtain a preliminary injunction, you must prove likelihood of success on the merits, irreparable harm, balance of equities, and public interest. The first win of the preliminary injunction, the oral and maxiofacial surgeon, was accused of credible allegations of fraud and had an immediate suspension placed on the facility's reimbursement. Upon more investigation, the true cause of the suspension was this alleged data mining. Now, here's the problem with data mining that no one tells you. It is underwhelming in intelligence. Computer programs are not healthcare providers, nor are they healthcare attorneys. The data mining found against Dr. J's facility determined it as an outlier, meaning that Dr. J's facility built a higher amount of, of certain CDT codes than others in the state who also accept Medicaid. But the system compared Dr. J's facility to general dentists, not oral surgeons, so the data was skewed. The judge agreed and the suspension was lifted. The second preliminary injunction win was a behavioral substance abuse facility whose CEO allegedly did not disclose a personal tax plea. The upshot is, the fact is, there is no rule 
that you must disclose a personal legal infraction to any managed care organization or agent of the government for a personal reason, even if you're an executive to a facility. Uh, the judge agreed as well. And we successfully obtained a preliminary injunction ordering that the company's contract be restored and intact. So these are two good stories on a dreary Monday. Happy Monday. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner of the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink, Sam Nick, David Glazer, and Frank Cohen, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's April the 19th, and you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday Standby. Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. From outpatient and inpatient coders to billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now envision one place satisfying all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in this centralized hub would be accessible from any location at any time with any device for one affordable price. While there is such a place, introducing the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Get unlimited access to every MedLearn Media Resource in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. View content whenever and wherever on the device of your choosing. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Subscribe today. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what could be possibly risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of risk assessment. Usually, I focus on legal or regulatory topics, but today I'm going to be a bit more psychologically minded. First, please humor me by engaging in a bit of a thought experiment. Let's assume that today you take the dogs for a walk and nothing eventful happens. Tomorrow, while you're out and about, you find a $100 bill. You're thrilled. That night, you're getting ready for bed, and you reach into your pocket, and you find a hole. The $100 bill is missing. If you had to rank the two days, would you consider one of them better than the other? If the research of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky is correct, most of us would say that the day with the found and subsequently lost $100 bill was worse. But if you think about it economically rather than emotionally, the two days are identical. You just ended the day as you started it. In fact, if anything, the day where you found and lost the money is better. It offers a good story and everything in life is a good time or a good story. So what's going on? Kahneman and Tversky posit that we place more weight on loss. Their research suggests that most of us would reject the age old adage, it's better to have loved and lost, than never loved at all. While this overweighting of loss isn't exactly the same as risk assessment, it's related. And I think it causes many people to assess risk poorly, which can jeopardize important decisions. A great example is the approach to the J&J vaccine. It's been widely reported that about one ca- there's one case of blood clots for every million doses of the medication so far. Now that could change as more data comes in. And I, The risk of blood clots is nothing to scoff at, but let's put that risk in some perspective. There are people who are going to say, I'm young, so the risk of a vaccine isn't worth it. 
they'd note, hey, 95% of COVID deaths occur in people 50 and up. That's true. Um, now, since those under 50 are only 5% of the deaths, that sounds super persuasive, but that leaves 27,000 deaths so far for people under the age of 50. So let's do some math. I'm going to channel Frank Cohen now. People under 50 are about 64% of the United States, about 209 million people. That means the risk of death from the past year, or in the past year, if you're under the age of 50, is right around 129 per million, or 129 times higher than your risk of getting a blood clot. And since only one of those folks died, it means your risk of dying of COVID is about 1,000 times higher than the risk of dying from the J&J &J vaccine. Now, this calculus is imperfect if you're a 25-year-old, right? The risk to a 50-year-old of COVID death is higher than the risk to a 25-year-old. But for people in their 40s, at least, it's really weird to be scared of something that's literally a thousand times safer than the alternative. So it's not rational, it's perception. It's erroneously concluding that inaction is free while attributing risk only to action. Finally, I do want to mention I've seen some decent articles discussing the probability question, but many have statistics that are misleading or at least unclear. For example, I've seen that the risk of blood clots associated with the use of hormonal birth control is about one in a thousand. But is that per year, per hundred years, per lifetime? It doesn't say. With statistics, details matter. 40,000 people a year die on the roads, while about 21 die from parachuting. Does that mean skydiving is safer than driving? Not at all. To answer that, you have to come up with a mechanism to adjust for the number of people who do each and the length of time spent on each activity. Returning to Kahneman and Tversky, our visceral reaction to risk can be utterly irrational, and recognizing that might help us make better decisions. When you think about how our brains work, Steve Winwood might have a point. It may be good when even you don't quite believe you, because that's when nothing can deceive you. Paraphrasing the title of his song, you want to see what your chance is before you take it. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan fink Samnick. Alan also has today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. So last week was all about the CDC declaration that racism is a public health crisis. I know that surprises all of you. Yet amid the popularity of that messaging, another relevant story got second billing. April 11th through 17th marked the fourth annual Black Maternal Health Week, a definite population health priority. I wanted to use this week's broadcast to review how the United States initiatives are addressing the ongoing gaps in care for pregnant women of color and those of childbearing age. Current facts point to mandates for action. 
The U.S. has the highest rate of maternal mortality among developed nations, the rate rising steadily for the past 40 years. Reported pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. increased from 7.2 deaths per 100,000 live births in 1987 to 17.3 deaths per 100,000 live births in 2017. The ratios identified across ethnic and racial groups are unconscionable to consider. 41.7 deaths per 100,000 live births for non-Hispanic black women, 28.3 deaths per live births for non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaskan Native women, 13.8 deaths for non-Hispanic Asian or Pacific Islander women, 13.4 deaths, again, for per 100,000 live births for non-Hispanic white women, and 11.6 deaths per 100,000 live births for Hispanic or Latin or women. Several pregnancy-related death factors have declined as hemorrhage, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, such as preeclampsia and eclampsia, and anesthesia com complications. Though with chronic diseases on the rise, and especially for minority communities, these diagnoses factor heavily in maternal morbidity and mortality rates, including chronic heart disease, diabetes, and cerebrovascular events. Reviews from the maternal mortality review committees across 25 states are worth time to review, and the URLs for that site are included in my article this week. Having sat on Virginia's state MMR committee, I can attest to the rigor and commitment of those engaged in reviewing all pregnancy-related deaths, including deaths occurring within one year of giving birth. A lengthy data brief and interactive map live on the CDC Erase Maternal Mortality website. Among the key findings, two out of three pregnancy-related deaths occur outside of the day of delivery or the week postpartum. The leading causes of pregnancy-related deaths varied by race and ethnicity, though black mothers are almost three times as likely to die in childbirth compared to other racial and ethnic groups. Two out of three deaths were determined to be preventable. Now, at the end of 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services set the following thresholds to improve maternal health by 2025. First, reduce maternal mortality by 50%. Second, reduce low-risk cesarean deliveries by 25%. And three, control blood pressure in 80% of reductive age, reproductive age women. The White House proclamation for Black Maternal Health Week 2021 set the perfect tone to end this week's report. The United States must also grow and diversify the perinatal workforce, improve how we collect data, to better understand the causes of maternal death and complications from birth, and invest in community-based organizations to help reduce the glaring racial and ethnic disparities that persist in our healthcare system. Our Monitor Monday poll asks, does your organization or agency have any initiative, either in place or planned, to address maternal mortality for women and youth of color for 2021? Yes. No, do not know, does not apply. Well, we'll review those important results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Ellen Frick Sandrick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast.
Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Chuck. This week is all about freeing healthcare data, both clinical and administrative. As part of the 21st Century Cures Act, CMS's interoperability rules and ONC's information blocking regulations go into effect today. Many other, among many other provisions, the rules allow patients to access their electronic health information through APIs. APIs, or application programming interfaces, are how phone apps like Google, PayPal, and travel and weather apps gather data from many different sources, make it available, and more importantly, make the data understandable and usable for consumers. The rules effective today are designed to give patients better access to their clinical records and make it easier for patients, multiple providers, to share health records among themselves to improve that patient's treatment. So if you think of HIPAA as giving patients the right to their own data, the regulations in effect today give rules of the road to hospitals and payers on how and when to share that information. So there are likely two effects of these rules from the point of view of the patient. First, the rule will allow third parties, including those app developers, to access clinical information on behalf of the patient. So while it's not expected that there will be a sudden rush of patients asking doctors for their electronic health records, it is expected that more and more patients will be accessing that data via healthcare apps on their phones or computers. Second effect, it will now be easier for a patient to have their clinical data move with them should they change health plans or see multiple providers because the rule requires seamless payer-to-payer and provider-to-provider exchange. Now, note that a rule enforcing the enforcement information blocking regulation has not been written or published yet, and HHS has implied that in spite of the effective date today, they will give entities some time to implement the requirements. However, a similar enforcement leniency may be coming to an end when it comes to the hospital price transparency requirements. That rule has been in effect since January 1st, but a number of studies have demonstrated that the hospitals have been slow to comply. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation analysis, the transparency data has not been consistently available or reliable, and other studies have shown the data to be difficult to access. In reaction, a bipartisan group of congressional lawmakers has sent a letter to HHS asking that it increase oversight of compliance with the rule and to revisit methods of enforcement. Chuck, although we hear a lot of talk in the political arena about healthcare reform, the most transformative policy in healthcare today are these interoperability and transparency initiatives, which are already well underway. Under these multiple rules, consumers will soon have an enormous amount of clinical and pricing data literally at their fingertips, accessible through the phones in their hands, data that is made usable by a new industry of healthcare app developers. Chuck, it's going to bring about a whole new world and how consumers relate to their own health, as well as how they think about paying for healthcare. Back to you. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was the chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. And coming up next, the very, very interesting results from today's Monitor Monday listener survey. You are listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. 
It's time to take back control from insurers who have been taking back reimbursement revenue from your facility through egregious DRG denials. During an upcoming Rack Monitor webcast, you will learn an approach for gaining control of the appeals process by improving documentation and by taking a deep dive into the investigation of the denied claim. It's time to take control, and this webcast is the place to learn super smart strategies for grabbing and holding on to the control that belongs to hospitals and providers. Register now to attend Super Smart Strategies for Appealing Ridiculous DRG Denials. This webcast is Thursday, April 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now. Now's the time for the results of today's Modern Monday Listener Survey. Once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. We'll talk about a proactive opportunity to address revenue enhancement and a very important segment of the population. Does your organization or agency have an initiative either in place or planned to address maternal mortality for women and youth of color for 2021? Close to, it keeps changing as I'm about to report it, but close to 15% said yes. You guys are in the right place and have the right focus. Only about 9% said no. Uh, We did have some uh, listeners who this area was not the focus of their organization. About 20% this did not apply. And then about 55% of our listeners were not sure. But certainly that is an imperative to check on for the future. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. With little in the way of reporting on the backlog of appeals at the administrative law judge level, that's the ALJ, you could conclude that such hearings are on hiatus. But that's not the case, according to senior health care consultant Frank Cohn, who joins us now. Good morning, Frank. You testified at only four hearings between 2019 and 2020, but you've already testified at four hearings this year, plus four more between now and June. What's going on, and what's the story about the alleged backup at the ALJ? Well, you know, this isn't like the public health emergency, but the situation that healthcare providers face <clears throat> is a financial emergency of sorts, in, in my opinion. And that is an epidemic of overzealousness on the side of government contractors that are responsible for auditing and billing and coding for hospitals. And we're talking about hospitals, nursing homes, physicians, the whole thing. And this is the RACs, the UPICs, and all the other alphabet soup of companies that are incentivized to find as many errors as possible. As a result, instead of the statutory 90 days to get in front of an ALJ, uh, providers were facing delays of three years or more. And during that time, the feds would confiscate their money, um, extort it in my opinion, and, and, and that the monies they said were overpaid, even though in the end, the overwhelming majority had to return back, had to be returned back to the provider. So this crisis of due process started several years ago with the expansion of the RACs. But it's not that more and more audits were being conducted. It's that more and more of the audits resulted in unreasonable findings. And that's not just the world, according to Frank. At the ALJ level of appeal, between half and three quarters of the overpayment findings were wrong and they were at least as adjudicated by the judge. And, and at this level, truly, this is the only impartial and unbiased arbiter in the entire appeals process. And those determinations, uh, adjudications were reversed back in favor of the provider. So one has to ask oneself this question. If the auditors were competent, 
and the audits were fair, would we have seen this crisis escalate so quickly? And the answer is an overwhelming no. And that's because if the providers lost the majority of their appeals, they would likely slow down or stop appealing because it would be a waste of time and resources. But when the majority of overpaid claims are adjudicated back to the provider, then the incentive to appeal becomes significantly stronger. So the result of all this was a rush to the ALJ level. And, and simply put, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals did not have enough ALJs to meet the increase uh, in the appeals request. And we went from this 90-day wait period to a three-year wait period almost overnight. So in 2018, a lawsuit is filed against HHS. The judge, the Honorable James E. Bosberg of the U.S. District uh, court for the District of Columbia reinstated a deadline-based order that requires HHS to reduce the backlog of appealed Medicare claims annually by some specific amount, including a 75% reduction by the end of 2021 and supposedly no backlog by the end of 2022. And, and the incentive to them was if it went longer than that, they were just going to have to start. Um, there would be a summary judgment in favor of the provider. So it appears to be working. So like you said, I've testified in four hearings in 2019 and 20. I've already done four. Uh, now I have six more scheduled uh, just by June alone, till June alone. And these are cases, Chuck, that I first started working on back in 2014 and 15. So while it seems that we may have found a solution, I would opine that this is simply not the case. The ends do not justify the means. And if we don't fix the problem in the front end, which is to hold the auditors accountable, the time's going to come when you exhaust the number of ALJs you can add, and the crisis once again rears its ugly head. Fix the front end, you no longer have a crisis in the back end. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence and Doctors Management. Read his reporting on the ALJ in this Thursday's Rack Monitor. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Dr. John K. Hall, who substituted for Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Frank Cohen, who reported our lead story. When we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a good week, everybody, and thank you for starting your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.